We've got something else exciting this morning. We are launching a series on discipleship. And to do that, let's go now to Matthew chapter 9. And Miss Betty is going to come and uh, read God's Word to us. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And I and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, my taxes collectors and sinners came where they were reclining with Jesus and with his disciples. And then the Pharisees saw this day, they said to his disciples, Why does your teachers eat and with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a position, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not to call the righteous but sinners. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to open our hearts to his word this morning. Father, you are so good. You're so good to give us your word. Uh, first, the very living word, Jesus the Christ, your word in flesh incarnate. And then um, to preserve that word for us in written form so that we might not wander through this world in the darkness, but we might have light on the path, that we might know what is true and good, that we might know how you would have us live. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would come by your Spirit and you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you would show us what a true disciple is all about, what discipleship is all about, and that you would create a a banquet of discipleship relationships in this church. That, Father, we would reach into this community. We would befriend those that are on the outside with the merciful intention of seeing you work in their lives that they might come on the inside. Oh, God, I pray for revival in downtown. I pray that it would start with us. I pray, God, that you would convince many of the truth of the teaching and person of Jesus Christ, and that many would see their sin of rejecting Him and living in unbelief, but that, Father, they would receive the gift of faith, and they would see the joy, and they would see the life, and they would see the light, and that You would bring them into the kingdom. Oh, God, only You can do that. And so would You do it. Bless us now, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus saw Matthew, the tax collector, at the tax booth. It's a place that Matthew sat most every day, not just to collect taxes, but to swindle people out of their money. No one wanted to see Matthew at the tax booth. No one wanted to do business with Matthew because he always had the upper hand. He always had the power. And he was always skimming some off for himself. 
And yet on this day, Jesus goes by the tax booth and he looks at Matthew and he says, follow me. And the text tells us that that he gets up and he follows. (laughs) Commentators tell us that this was not the first meeting. Uh, Jesus chose Capernaum as, as his ministry base, and this was Matthew's hometown. And so it was obvious that they had met before. It, it was obvious that Matthew was, was there. He was on the verge of receiving Jesus, of saying yes to, to who he was. And now it was decision time, and Jesus said, follow me. He, say, he was saying there, if you want to know what the Christian life is about, this is it. Follow me. Because Christianity is not about religion that focuses only on behavior, but it's about relationship that focuses on following the incarnate Christ Jesus. And so it brings up the question to us today, are we following Jesus? Notice I didn't ask, have you received Jesus in your heart and are you, have you done some transactional thing and you feel good and, and, and you're going to be in heaven? I'm asking you, and I believe the text is asking us, are you following Jesus? Because here's my fear. I think it's abundantly obvious that Christianity can be more cultural than relational. And because Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things, that it's easy for us to think that we're following Jesus when we've just kind of given a nod and and done some eternal transaction that we feel like, okay, I'm good now to go live my life. And not only that, but it's easy to do church and to see the church grow and have all the signs of outward evidences of health When we are not making disciples of Jesus, but we're just gathering people in the room and we're feeling good because we gathered and then we're going and our lives are no different. And we're not pressing the truth and the beauty of Jesus on those around us. You see, Jesus begins his public ministry saying, follow, and he ends by saying, go. And that's what a disciple does. A disciple follows and a disciple goes. And that's what we're looking at over the next eight, nine, or ten weeks as we march through this series because this is our fourth element of of core commitment as downtown church. You see, we are a kingdom-focused, gospel-empowered, multi-ethnic, multi-class, disciple-making church. And I feel like through the years, we we started out looking at what a gospel-driven church is all about. And then we kind of focused on how specifically, and we're still focusing on how specifically we can be a kingdom-focused church. And we've talked about multi-ethnicity and multi-class and the biblical model for that and how we are as an apologetic to the world. But now it's time for us to focus and bring it all together and say, okay, so how now are we going to be a disciple-making church? How is this going to be part and parcel to who we are? And we believe that the church has abandoned this through the years. And it's something that we need to refocus on. So let's look at it. Three things. 
from this text, first of all, we need to see that a disciple is a follower of Christ. As we think about discipleship, we have to spend some time on on, on defining what a disciple is. And plain and simple, a disciple is a follower of Christ. Disciple was a common concept in Jesus' day. Discipleship was a common concept in Jesus' day. You see, there were no school, no real formal schools, but there was discipleship. Someone would would rise up as a teacher in the town or a teacher in the village or a teacher in the city, and it would seem to be um, a a person that, that possessed a lot of truth. And he could help one not just learn facts, but he could help one learn how to use those facts and think about life. They were somewhat of a philosopher or religious leader, if you will. And it was very common for people to come and sit up under a teacher, a rabbi. And so there were students and, and, and those that would come up under, uh, apprentices, and they would come up under and sit up under and learn from the one that was discipling them. And this is why Matthew and the other gospel writers could use this, this, this word disciple. It's why Jesus in uh, Matthew 28, or excuse me, Matthew in Matthew 28 can record Jesus' words, go and make disciples of all nations. Because disciple and discipleship was a common element. But today, it seems that we've lost sight of that. Because now the focus is more on the student than the teacher. And we, in our Western mindset, we don't need anybody to lead us. We gather truth and bits and pieces here. We decide for ourselves what we're going to do. And yet we're discipled all the time. The concept is still here, even if we're trying to throw it off. It's in the basic elements of our lives. I was at the Liberty Bowl a couple weeks ago. Well, several weeks ago. Three weeks ago now. And I was... It had been a long time since I'd been to an Arkansas game. And I grew up in Arkansas. My dad still lives in Arkansas. I grew up going to Fayetteville and watching Arkansas games. And so as I got in the stadium, there were probably 60,000, 70,000 Arkansas fans. And we started calling the hogs. And in the middle of me, and a lot of you are going, what in the world are you talking about? Well, this is when adults, upstanding adults, get together with a hog on their head and red on their bodies and say, Pig! Suey! We do it three times. At the end we say, Razorbacks! And as I'm sitting there, and it's been a long time since I've been in a game, and I'm watching myself do this, and I'm watching others do this, while you're saying, You're doing little fingers like that. You know, Some people add that a little bit. I'm thinking, how did these people learn to do this? Discipleship. (laughs) I mean, that's how truth is conveyed most of the time. How How is truth conveyed mostly? Families, parents, you're discipling your children, you're teaching them everything about life. That's discipleship. Children are disciples. It's discipleship. And yet we act when we come to this like we don't understand what it means. Uh, we, we come and we're like, okay, what is discipleship? And, and what is a disciple? And I just don't... A disciple is a follower 
of Jesus. A disciple has has become so captivated by the truth and beauty of who Jesus is that he can think of nothing else. That life has to be brought under the lordship and the teaching and the direction of Jesus. And you see, people hear that today and they say, well, that's just too radical. I mean, that's just kind of archaic. But listen, here's the reality. Religion is something that I don't believe is worth your time. But Christianity is if it's true. Because what Jesus says is not, here is truth, now go follow it. But Jesus says, here is truth and you have not followed it. You have failed at every point. Here is God's standard and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But I have come. And I've lived under the law. I've done that in your place. I didn't just go to the cross to pay the price of of the penalty for your sin, but I lived under the law for you. I jumped high enough. I performed perfectly because you couldn't. And then I went to the cross. I I was arrested for false charges. I was falsely tried and falsely sentenced. But I was sentenced to my death. And I went there for you. I love how Isaiah puts it in chapter 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. I can't keep my mouth shut when I'm falsely accused of something. (laughs) Everything in me begins to squirm. But Jesus, the righteous one, the holy one of Israel, was accused of being the essence of evil, a heretic, representing God falsely. And yet he was silent as he went to the cross. Why? Because of his heart full of love for you and me. He gave himself. God became man. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that now we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that if that is true, at least if you're here today and you're skeptical about all this, can you understand that if if someone embraces that as their reality, that their lives have to be different? That you can't just say, ah, well, okay. You can't just give a nod to that kind of God and say, okay, I believe you, now let me go live my life. No, you've got to say, here's my life, now you tell me how to live it. Here I am because I am yours because you have bought me. I am yours now and I follow you. I go where you go. I do what you do. If I'm contemplating a job, if I'm contemplating a relationship, if I'm contemplating anything, I bring my body, I bring my, I bring everything to you, Lord Jesus, because you lived and you died and you rose and you're coming back one day. And you're going to take me to be with you. Do you see that a disciple must follow Jesus because he is worthy to be followed? And I think the reality is there too. That we have to understand that we are following someone. We are. 
You are following someone if you're not following Christ. Every time that I bristle at being the call to be humble, I'm following myself. Each time that I refuse to obey the law of God, I'm setting my own heart and my own life up as God and saying, I know better. Do you understand that it's it's to that degree? And so a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you following Him? Are you spending time with Him? You see it? Is that what prayer is to you? Is that what His Word is to you? You're following Him. And then secondly, if you're following Him and you're a disciple, then you want your friends to know Jesus. I mean, here's the reality. To know Jesus is to go from trusting yourself to trusting God. And when you trust yourself or some system or code outside of yourself as your hope, then you are trusting your work and your obedience and your performance to save you. If you're trusting your work to save you, if you're trusting money to save you, then if you don't get your money and you don't don't perform like you want to in your work, your career doesn't go like it should go. If you're trusting a guy to be your Savior, to be your happiness, if you're trusting a girl to be your Savior, to be your happiness, if you put yourself up under something or someone else, then they better have the power to sustain your hope. But when you come to Jesus, you understand that He can sustain your hope because He's already done it. He's lived, He's died, He rose, He's coming back. And there's joy. Because there's nothing that I can find out about myself today that will separate me from the love of God. Nothing. I can commit sin today. I can turn my face away from Christ and yet He will still love me. Because I'm His. And He will do all that He must do to bring me back to Himself. That's a God worth believing in. And that's a God worth telling your friends about. When we went to Colorado to plant the church there in Colorado, uh, we didn't know anybody. And yet we wanted those in Colorado, specifically those that were not in church or didn't know Jesus, to come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And we began to bring people together. We began just to love people and to meet people and... And we, we gathered enough people, we, we made enough friends where we said, you know what, our next step, we're going to have a party. Just like Matthew 9. <laughs> and that's what we did. And I said, you know what, everybody I meet asks me if I'm from Texas because they listen to how I talk and they just assume I'm from Texas. And I say, no, I'm not from Texas. Don't, don't demean me like that. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. And I said, you know what, it's obvious I'm a southerner, so I'm just going to make it, I'm just going to celebrate the reality. So I asked some of my friends, I said, have y'all ever ate fried catfish? They're like, fried catfish? Are you kidding me? People eat catfish? I said, ho, 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 ho. So I, I went to Sam's in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I, I looked in their frozen food section, and they, and they didn't just have catfish. 
They had farm-raised catfish from Indianola, Mississippi. And I said, it's on. So I bought 400 catfish fillets. We got a band, and we set up in a guy's backyard, and we had a party. Hush puppies, fries, catfish... I was exhausted by the end of the night. There was grease everywhere. But there wasn't anything left. Those people didn't know what hit them. And over the years, as a church came together and we moved on to barbecue, not hamburgers and hot dogs on the grill, barbecue, pork. And by the time we left... My friends weren't talking so much about the catfish and the barbecue and my southern accent or Rachel's southern accent. They were thanking us that we brought the gospel to them. And dear friends, that's it. (laughs) Because we went to tell our new friends about the hope of the gospel And as we begin this new series, we need to understand that the approach matters. Because there's a difference between religion and Christianity. Religion needs converts. Christianity wants converts. Follow me here, people. This could be the most important thing that I say, or maybe Chris says, in the coming weeks, I believe. Religion must have converts in order to validate itself. A religious person must do all that they must do to convince you to to come into it because they're right. Because they need it. Their justification before God depends on making a convert. But do you get any of that here? That's why I came to this passage first. No! Matthew, just they just start eating. And all of Matthew's friends, all of his scumbag friends start coming. And Jesus is like, here we go. This is it. Why? Because Jesus doesn't need converts to justify his mission. He wants converts. Because that's his mission. Dear friends, have you ever been part of a church? Have you ever been part of an organization where you felt manipulated to be a Christian? Have you ever had a Christian try, you felt like they were pursuing you like an insurance agent? I'm sorry, I love insurance agents. I, I do. I have friends that are insurance agents. But you can't go to a party without thinking about selling insurance. Or financial advisors or, you know, others, other people. And I'm so, I know, man, that's tough. That's, that's your life. But dear friends, the world knows if our intent is to try to get them to be our disciple so that we can walk around and parade about who we're discipling. I was talking to Patrick Bingham, and Patrick said, yeah, the first time that this guy... Um, reached out to him and started spending time with him, every time 
uh, because Patrick had been around. He'd grown up in Whitehaven, and he knew white people come around. You know, they're nice for a minute. They feed you so they can get that gospel presentation, jump back in the van, and head back to church. And so Patrick, when this individual um, started building a relationship with him, after every meeting, Patrick told me I would get on Facebook to see if he put pictures of us on Facebook. And thank God he didn't. (laughs) Because it was in that relationship that Patrick came to see, this guy really loves me. This guy cares about me. He's not trying to win me. He genuinely wants me to be walking with Jesus. And it's sincere. Can your friends say the same thing about you? We have to affirm the danger through this series and through the life of this church of creating such a plastic model for discipleship that nothing happens but we celebrate ourselves and our church because of how much we talk about discipleship. When we're doing real and true discipleship, notice in the passage, religious people are going to talk about us. That's what we see here. The Pharisees look at Matthew and they're like, why does your teacher eat and drink with, or eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, here's the reality. The way you know that you're a Pharisee is this way. The primary way you know you're a Pharisee and not a disciple is if you have no concern for sinners meeting Jesus, but you're obsessed with a concern to be accepted, praised, and recognized in the church. Let me say that again. The primary way that you know you're a Pharisee and not a disciple is if you have no concern for sinners meeting Jesus, but you're obsessed with a concern to be accepted, praised, and recognized in the church. Why have we lost the world? Because we've abandoned the world. Why aren't we having an impact on those outside the church? Because we have no relationships with anyone outside of the church. Because we've stopped going to the parties. We've stopped doing the activities. We only spend our time with Christians because we are concerned about what other people might think. Jesus knew why He came. He came to set people free. And it's interesting that This disciple that he calls was someone that nobody else wanted to be with. Don't you think that's the pattern that he wants to lay down for us as Christians? Are you befriending those that nobody else, especially Christians, want to be friends with? How else are they going to know the hope of Jesus Christ? Do you want your friends to know Jesus If you don't want your friends to know Jesus, my fear is the gospel has become stale in your life. Because when you understand the reality, as Jesus lays out here, that he came for sinners, not the righteous. When you understand that he came to set us free from having to live for the approval of others, from having to live the religious games and play the religious games, when you understand that, 
there's, there's no reason not to tell people. I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm going skiing this week, and I can tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to get on a ski lift in Colorado, and there's somebody will get on, and now, because it's so legal, they were doing it before it was illegal, they're going to be smoking marijuana. I had one guy come on, and all he was talking about were the strip clubs that he owned. And it... A lift is a lo- it's a long ride to the top of the mountain. So as I'm sitting there and I listen to people's stories and we're talking, inevitably, before we get to the top, what are they going to say? So what do you do for a living? And you know what I love about those times? There's not one sin that I've heard that I could just kind of scoot over and say, get away from me, you sinner, I can't relate. No. No. There's nothing anybody can tell me that I can't say, brother, I may not be looking to that for life, but I'm looking to something else. Do you see? That is discipleship. That's helping people rehear the gospel That this guy believes the gospel that he's telling me. He believes he's a sinner. Are you telling your friends about Jesus and do they believe that you believe the gospel? And then thirdly, a disciple must pursue table fellowship with sinners. Why did Jesus eat and drink with sinners? Not only that, why did he feast on food and wine with tax collectors and sinners? Did you hear that? Not Jesus didn't just attend the dinners. He was part of the dinner. Why else would the Pharisees say in Matthew eleven nineteen, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here, he, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because when he sat down for a meal, he participated in the meal. This was not a business meeting that had food. This was a meal that he was there to build friendships. This is radically different, friends. Look at it. It doesn't even say he went to a dinner. It says he reclined at table. He reclined at table. That's huge. Because that's what dinner was in that day. It was a long, drawn-out thing where people didn't just come, and it wasn't this pragmatic thing, okay, let's eat real fast so we can get on to the business and get our org charts up here. And No, I mean, dinner was it. The food and drink was it. Because it was so rare and it was celebrated. It wasn't fast, it wasn't easy, it wasn't cheap. It was, it was an event. And it was a relational, intimate event. That's why the disciples say, why does your teacher eat in, with tax collectors and sinners? Because to eat at the table meant friendship. And do you see, there's so much to learn here. We just don't have to get it into it all. That's why we're taking so many weeks. But do you understand that Jesus was making friends and there's no evidence that anybody else came to faith this night? He was simply making friends, speaking truth and making friends. What's keeping you from eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? See, we've got to go so slow here. Because 
there's a, a view of piety in the church today that is absolutely damaging. I experienced it when I first became a Christian in high school. The first thing I did was threw away my ACDC, my Leonard Skinner, my Doobie Brothers, my Kiss cassette tapes. Let's date myself. There you go. I repent of doing that. Now. But that's what I did. I threw it all away. I got a sober face around all my non-Christian friends. I stopped going to the parties. I stopped doing all those things. And I just started praying, God, just help them to see all the sacrifices I'm making and just win them over. And I won nobody over. Because who wants that? They didn't see a joy in my life. They saw sacrifice. They saw duty. And do you see what Jesus is saying here? I don't desire sacrifice, but mercy. Go learn what this means. What this means is, I'm not so concerned about your personal stuff. Okay, throw away your cassette tapes. Throw it. But is your heart burning in love for those around you? Do you want to see your friends know the hope that is within you? See, the reason that Jesus could go to a dinner and eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners was because He's the one that made the food and the drink. And the eating and the drinking was not the sin. They called Him a glutton and a drunkard. Is that sin? Yes. But was Jesus a glutton and a drunkard simply because He ate and drank? No. Because the difference between one who eats or drinks and becomes a glutton or a drunkard, and one who eats and drinks to the glory of God, as Paul tells us, is the very intent of doing so. You see, one goes to food and says, this is my life and I'm going to look to it to be everything that I need, or, or goes to drink and said, here is my hope, this is my life, this is my true love, and I'm going to pour everything into that, and that is not what Jesus was doing. But the Pharisees had no category for this, because they felt like, hey, we abstain, therefore God loves me. And what Jesus was saying, no, God loves me because I'm His Son. And we say the same thing. But dear friends, as we go into this world, and we're in places where we are having to be merciful to be there, because of the language that's being used, because of whatever's going on, we stay. Why? Because our hearts are full of mercy. And if I'm not here, who's going to be here? Dear friends, this whole idea of mercy and taking a posture of mercy and not judgment of the world is, is huge. Webster's Dictionary defines mercy as this, kind or forgiving treatment of someone who could be treated harshly, or kindness or help given to people who are in a very bad or desperate situation. Do you see it? That's what Jesus wants from His church. Be merciful as you go. Listen. Speak truth. Why can a Christian speak truth to his non-Christian friends? Why can a Christian speak truth when he's in a bar or when he's in whatever context he is in? Because God 
is not judging him based on winning the convert. Because his relationship with Jesus is one of acceptance through the finished work of Christ. So dear friends, are you in any kind of relationship that might make somebody talk? Are you moving into places that other people might be going, Oh, do you see him? then I'm just not so sure that you're following Jesus or I'm following Jesus. Do you love people enough to go where they are? Do you love people enough to be the odd guy out? I hunt with guys. And I don't know what it is about hunting. But when you're hunting with a bunch of guys, especially that aren't believers, um... It just gets interesting, um, especially when you're a Christian. And it would be a lot easier and a lot more fun, to be honest with you, to get all my Christian friends together and to have our own hunting club and to lay our own rules down. But you know what? There's something offsetting about me having to go to their club. There's something offsetting about me having to go into their context and for me to be the outsider. Because in the midst of that, I find that I need Jesus. Because I can't make any changes. (laughs) I need Jesus. I need Him to give me an opportunity to show something different other than I don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls that do. (laughs) But to show them that there is life to be had. That Jesus is better than anything they're talking about and anything that they're chasing. That His forgiveness and His love is what they're looking for. And so therefore, how do we make disciples? And how do we be a disciple? We have to be completely captivated by the love of Jesus Christ. It has to be so real to us. It can't just be words on a page. It has to be a living reality in my life. I have to literally believe in every moment that there is no one more precious. There's no one more trustworthy. There is no greater riches than Him. There is no greater pleasure but Him. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy me in any moment but Him. And if I'm not there, then I'm not going to be making disciples of Jesus. And if I'm not there, then I'm going to be struggling with my identity and my reputation. And, oh man, I don't want to have to speak up again. I'm sick of being that guy. The only thing that's going to get us over us is the love of Jesus Christ. And so we have to say, are you captivated by Jesus Christ? Does He have you? Is His forgiveness today bigger than your guilt or your shame? If you came this morning with guilt and shame and you think that's what God wants you to bring, no! Why do you think He lived and died and rose for you so that you wouldn't live in guilt and shame? But so that right now you could say, Hey, yes, in my flesh I am worth nothing. But oh, in Christ I'm worth everything. Do you feel that in this moment? 
Do you know that if you do, that you're going to have to preach it again at noon? You're going to have to preach it again at night? You're going to have to preach it again to yourself tomorrow? You're going to have to preach it again to yourself tomorrow afternoon? You've got to preach it, preach it, preach it to yourself. Because everything in you wants to say no to that. But that's the only way that you are going to be a true disciple of Jesus. When you're captivated by the reality of His love. And it's the only way that you're really going to make disciples of Jesus. When you say, hey, man, He's the best. Let me tell you how, and let me tell you why. So, dear friends, are you in love with Jesus? May we cry out to Him. May downtown church be a place where people, men and women, boys and girls, are so captivated by Jesus that we can do no other but tell our neighbors. We can do no other but love the world. We can do no other but go to people wherever they are because Jesus came where we are. And discipleship is not some plastic methodology. But discipleship is a living, organic reality that overflows out of God's love that's being poured into us. Dear friends, may we move in that direction. May we cry out to God for it. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have lived, that you have died, that you have risen, that you're coming back to make all things new. So God, would you free somebody in this room right now from the guilt and the shame. Would you free somebody right now, many somebodies in this room right now, would you help them by your Spirit to know the reality of your love for them, the reality that you have chosen them before the foundation of the earth to be your son or daughter, the reality that you sent your son Jesus to live under the law at every point knowing that that they would not obey, but you did it willingly and gladly that you might have many sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. May those in this room this morning know the reality that all their sins have been paid for. Lord Jesus, you went to the cross. Father, you poured out your just and righteous wrath and anger upon Jesus. And there is no guilt or shame now, not because we don't deserve it, but because you got it. You got what we deserve, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, Jesus, would you move throughout this room, move throughout our hearts by your Spirit, and make what I'm saying real because it is. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love sinners. Thank you that you came to save the sinners, the, those who needed a physician. We are sick, and we thank you that there's healing in you. Jesus, bring revival downtown and beyond. Pour out your Spirit, O God. Make stubborn, skeptical people like us believers and followers that go for Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.